to Genesis chapter 6. Wow. As we do, we're actually gathered as pastors and deacons tonight to, we have a community group that we meet in, and I think some of the themes that we've experienced in worship already this morning will they'll wash over us again tonight as we are as a team going through Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, together, and we begin that study tonight as, as we enjoy fellowship and time and laughing together. But I think that the themes of this morning are also speaking to us as a church. To the one who's burdened here today, to the one who is heavy laden, to the one who is wondering, how will I endure? I think the themes in worship are speaking to us that there is one who is able. And he's active and he's speaking to us. Thank you, ma'am. And today, through his word, he's going to, to continue to minister to us. But I think that something we need to acknowledge here as we continue on in the book of Genesis is that if you've grown up in the church, if you've been around any children's ministry, we're going to get into the version of some of the stories of the, the heroes of the faith, so to speak, the, the patriarchs that Moses is telling those who are in exile about. And, and we're not going to do this in like the felt board version. I'm old enough to remember felt board in Sunday school. I'll acknowledge it. I had an analog childhood and a digital afterlife. <laughs> but we remember felt board stories. We remember moments in VBS or when we first heard the story of Noah, and let me just acknowledge at the outset, all week I've been saying it wrong, I've been saying Jonah, and so if I do that today, just know I'm talking about Noah, <laughs> not in a different series, I'm not even studying that book, and all week I keep saying, so yesterday some friends were asking, what are you preaching on tomorrow? I said, not Jonah. <laughs> so just know up front I've been making that mistake all week in talking about today's sermon. But it's easy to think about the felt board version of these stories, isn't it? It's easy to fall into this almost a trap of familiarity and sentimentality about some of these stories. And to neglect or ignore or even worse, just gloss over the real message that they hold for us even today. So let's not fall into that trap today. We're going to cover... The ground of about six chapters in Genesis. Don't worry. We'll be out on time-ish. We're going to cover those six chapters. And, and here's where I want to challenge you. Don't take my word for it. Look at it yourself this week. My goal today is to kind of lay out some, some main tent posts that we can kind of build on. To kind of lay out the boundaries of what's happening here. In this account of Noah, we're going to see it's a true account. It's a historical event. It's something that Jesus himself acknowledges as real. And so, if it's real to Jesus through him, it's real to us today. 
And he really has something to say to us. And I have no idea where I'm at in my notes now. <laughs> Last Sunday, I spent a good amount of time talking about the sin and its effects in the world. And so I'm not going to spend as much time defining sin today as much as I just want to make sure that, uh, one, I'm grateful. Mike, thank you for that definition of grace that you like just flowed out of who you are. Thanks for leading us in that way, sir. Thank you. <clears throat> So I don't want to spend a ton of time on sin, so we're going to talk about judgment today. (laughs) But let's make sure we understand what sin is. Sin is transgressing or trespassing. It's going where we should not go. It's crossing against the right rule and order of God. It's in our thoughts, it's in our motive, and it's in our actions. Sin is comprehensive in its effects in our life. I actually like how Alistair Begg says it. He says, the devil may entice you to things, but he can't make you do it. Every sin is an inside job. Sin will spoil things. That sin will spread, and that sin will separate. I think that's a helpful, succinct reminder for us today of the effects of sin. And it may seem this morning that I'm going to kind of kind of blow through some details related to the passages. My intention is not to kind of have us lost in the Word of God. It's to build to something that I believe God has for us as a church today. The way He wants to speak to us through His Word today. He wants to speak, not not just to Metro Life Church, that He wants to speak to you as an individual, where you're at in your life, the things that you are facing, and He wants to reveal something about who He is to you today. So can we listen with that in mind? Now, I'm I'm, I'm skipping some major chunks of Scripture, so let's just hit a few highlights here. Consider this a rough summary of Genesis 4 through 11. Before Cain murders Abel. Yeah, that's real. That happened. The Lord warns Cain about the dangers of sin in Genesis 4-7. In chapter 4, verse 16, after the murder, God protects Cain with a mark even as he is exiled from the presence of the Lord to the land of Nod, east of Eden. We're going to see this a bit today, that there is a wickedness of man that is great in the earth, that God is going to save Noah in an ark and resolves, I will never again curse the ground because of man, because of the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. We're going to see that in chapter 8, verse 21. In the in-between, before next Sunday, as Aaron Osborne brings the word to us, he's an internationally renowned speaker. I don't know if you've ever met him. Aaron Osborne's going to bring the word next Sunday in Genesis chapter 12. The Sunday after that, Shane is going to bring the word. And I'm excited for those weeks to hear from these guys on these topics. But in the in-between the in of today's passage and where they will be, even as the Lord confuses human language and disperses people to cover the face of the earth, He does that to protect them from their own sin. See, there's this downward spiral of sin. There's this pervasive nature of sin that is just spreading across the earth. But God is actively developing and preserving a line of holy offspring for his purposes. Even as we read the genealogies in in Genesis chapter 5 before our, our text today, and we will get to the text today, 
The purpose of capturing those genealogies is to remind us that there is a line, that there is a seed coming that is the hope for salvation for fallen nature of man. And God wants us to see, not just historically, not just through these kind of uh, anthropology of man, he wants to see this has been his plan all along for salvation. To reveal his glory and his goodness, his grace and his mercy. And you may wonder, you know, sometimes we'll say that his grace and his mercy is what we receive. Well, his grace is his unmerited favor toward us. But his mercy says we deserved rightly a judgment from the holy God. And so today, may his mercy be more beautiful to us as we behold it afresh. May his mercy be more beautiful to us because we realize we deserve holy judgment. Talking about the issue of judgment is not here to pile on to the thoughts that may be in your own head this morning. It's to relieve them from you through Jesus Christ. Because doing that is the only way we can ultimately find satisfaction before a holy God. There's nothing else that we can do That's why his grace is an unmerited favor in our lives. That's why his mercy is beautiful. And through Jesus Christ, his mercy is more. Now, here in Florida, we have a love-hate relationship with water. We love it, and we hate it. We love it because it brings life, it, it brings coolness, it brings refreshing It's the moment jumping into a pool after doing the yard and then remembering that you've got the yard on you still. It's the terror of parents of young children as they realize it's everywhere. It's the overwhelming sense of nature at the beach when waves are just crashing over you and it's the terror of being swept out as a lifeguard blows his whistle and says, you get back here. We have a love-hate relationship with water, don't we? I was in a place yesterday called the swamp. It was living up to its name. How? Because it was swampy. What does it mean when you're in something swampy? It means moist in all the wrong ways. Yes, I just preached moist. It's swampy. We hate that. What do we need to bring refreshment to us? Water. We need water. Yesterday, we were making sure that that we were taking in enough hydration for being out in the middle of the day for four or five hours in the swamp. We have a love-hate relationship with water because we realize it brings uncomfortable times. It brings pain. It brings death at times. But we need it for life. And in the account of Noah, God uses water to reveal salvation. How does he do that? Well, let's look together. Genesis chapter 6. We begin today by understanding that God preserves us through his covenant mercy, and we begin by seeing that sin demands judgment. The Lord saw, Genesis 6, 5 through 9, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made him, made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, there are times in Scripture where we will come across a phrase, uh, the world, your translation may say, or as we read in this passage today, the earth. And oftentimes, this can be misunderstood as kind of a us in the church versus them in the world. Saved and, and the unbeliever. And we kind of weaponize this phrase a little bit in the church at times, and I, I want to caution us from that. I want to caution us from kind of taking this posture of, of righteous indignation toward the world. Because there are often times in Scripture that the world means this. More than the physical planet, more than this collective human population, there is an active, evil, spiritual force standing in direct conflict with God and His kingdom. Standing in direct conflict. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 5-7, through seven, we see reference to the sin that is pervasive throughout the earth. There is a wickedness that has spread everywhere that humanity has gone. God is actually watching our sinfulness destroy His creation. And it's vile in His eyes. Ephesians 2, 2 tells us in John 14, 30 that they are under the control of Satan. I don't do this to introduce some devil-made-me-do-it type of theology for us here in the church because there is a deceit, there is a self-centeredness these Scriptures reveal that make up the essence of Satan's character but they mark the sin of the world. They mark the sinfulness of man. And there's only one way to overcome that type of evil. 1 John 5, 4-5 tell us at the base level that it is Christ. So we can have a different understanding of the sin of the world. Now, we read in here that, that God regrets His creation. That is, that is the language that is used in most of our translations. There was a regret in his heart that he was sorry that he had made them. And I think it's important for us to understand this is a way that we as humans work to understand the character of God. God does not have some regret. He does not have the same type of, of experience that we do as humans because he is spirit. He is divine See, our understanding of God is limited, and so we have to use human terms to try to understand that. So to help us understand from God's perspective what his view of his creation was, how it was, how it was turning right before his very eyes, and how that grieves his spirit. Moses is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this text in a way to help us understand the grievous nature of our thoughts, of our motives, and our actions. God hates sin. It cannot stand in His holy presence. And so we find ourselves with a challenge, don't we? How does that get resolved? Well, God reveals this to us today because God cannot tolerate sin. It requires His judgment. It requires a judgment enacted on the earth. 
And as I said earlier, my, my point in bringing this out today is to help us understand afresh a the, the mercies of God in a way that maybe we don't give time to think about it. That we pause long enough to behold something, that we, we look at it deeply. Not so that it, it becomes the new mark that we're returning to this sense of failing, but so that His mercy through Jesus Christ is all the more beautiful to us. Derek Kidner says it this way in talking about how God approaches sinfulness. He says this, He does not meet sin with half measures, but with the simultaneous extremes of judgment and salvation. These don't stand opposed to one another. They are revealing the depth and breadth of the full character of God. They work in concert with one another. They work at the same time in God's character. There are no half measures with God. Judgment and salvation come in full. They come together. And we're going to see how judgment meets grace. If we consider these next verses, we realize that that God only saw wickedness spreading through the land. There was no one that was good. And and honestly, that would have included Noah. It says that Noah found favor with God, that he walked with God, but his wickedness was a part of what was lumped in with what God was seeing Noah had not done anything to earn favor with God. It's not something that he deserved. God gave it freely. Feel a little disconnected from this, the felt board yet? We're going to keep going. This is why I want you to read these chapters for yourself. Not just 6 through 9, but, but really 5 through 11 and, and see what it is that God is doing. See what it is that he is at work doing. See, the righteousness that Noah received was the result of grace. It was not the cause of it. Noah hadn't been able to live in some way where it was like, look at me. When God was looking at him, he said, look at how sinful the world has become. He was included in that statement. And yet God said, I'm looking at Noah and I'm saying, I'm going to pour out my favor on him. I've set him apart for my purposes. Yes, we're told that he walked with God, but he was sinful just like his parents and just like his peers. So let's drop down a bit in our passage today. Genesis chapter 6, let's look at verses 13 and 14 together. And we're going to drop down to 17 through 22. Genesis 6, 13 through 14. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Dropping down to verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. Let's notice, this is a promise to establish covenant. But I will establish my covenant with you. That means it's coming. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh. You shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. Mosquitoes. Mosquitoes, Noah. Why'd you bring the fall with you? They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of all the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive 
Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten to store it up. It shall serve for food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. See, Noah's salvation, Noah's sense of any blamelessness was not because he was able in his own strength to avoid sin. Noah looked by faith to the God who saves. That's how he received grace rather than judgment. More than that, God was giving him instructions in how to live for him. We have instructions of how to live for him. This week, we got a new printer in our house, and I asked my son Alec to set it up. This is an unapproved illustration. I asked Alec to set it up because I realized a lot of times I'm just the one that takes care of that kind of stuff, and I thought, this would be fun. I was right for me. I was wrong for him. He was like, this is an enormous pain. And I said, I know. That's why I asked you to do it. What did he have to work from? He had instructions to work from. He said, you're, you're a senior in high school. I think it would be good for you to just work through these instructions that aren't from a Lego set. And, and let's work through that. And, and like, I'm going to kind of stand back, but you have instructions in how to put this together. And you know what? The printer works. It's wonderful. But what did he have to do? He had to work through the instructions in the midst of that. We have instructions given to us through God's word. It wasn't something that he just had this innate ability to do. There is not a Mac versus PC version of our faith. We're all given instructions how this is to function, how this is to be borne out in the life of the believer. And we all follow the same instruction because we all should be looking to the same Savior. He's not leaving it up to his imagination. He's not telling Noah, like, look, this is all the stuff you're going to have to bring. Good luck with that. No, he gives him instructions how it is that he should live, what is, how it is that he should lay it out, the specific materials to use so that there is a way of salvation for them. Instructions in our faith are necessary. Taking time like we did this morning to just sit and listen and wait. Even waiting needs instruction. Why? Because we are constantly in a flurry of activity in our own minds. And waiting oftentimes is the last thing that we think about doing, but it's the first thing we're called to as believers. Wait on the Lord. I don't have time for that. Then we're living for something else. We need instruction. Thank God Noah listened to the voice of God. Is the same set of us? Is the same set of us? See, this is where we begin to understand the grace that saves us is also the grace that can sustain us. It can sustain you in what you're walking through right now. We're going to move over to chapter 7 now. You ever noticed that God's Word is very detailed, if we let it be? It's very detailed about God's work of salvation. There are some areas that I will, I will admit as a pastor, I wish it gave us a bit more instruction. 
My understanding from 1 and 2 Corinthians is that there are two other letters to the church in Corinth. Sometimes I wonder if those help us understand the gifts better. I wish there was more instruction. Do you know what? There is never a lack of instruction related to the salvation of God. And here's what's beautiful about God's salvation. I'm not aware of any covenant in Scripture that is anything other than salvation for us. There's not a covenant of damnation that I'm aware of. It's a part of the promises that come with a covenant. It's a part of the promise of what the consequence will be or the fallout will be of breaking a covenantal relationship. But thank God we don't sing songs about the covenant of damnation. What do we sing songs about? The covenant of grace. And God is revealing his nature and he is revealing how comprehensive his salvation is through covenants. And I'm glad that what Scripture speaks most specifically to in its instruction for us is how God saves us. Christ's work on our behalf. The Holy Spirit's heart in softening our hearts and opening our eyes to see our great need. Let's have that in mind as we read these next passages. Genesis chapter 7, verses 6 through 7. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. It's very specific. Scripture is very specific about the work of salvation. It's very specific. There was a day in the mind of the Lord when it came to salvation for Noah. There was a day in the mind of the Lord for you and for me as well. Can I ask you this? Is today your day? It's today the day that Jesus has written in his nail-scarred hands for you. Is there something about this that's coming to life in a way that says, that salvation is for you. You can receive it as a gift. Do you bring in baggage? Sure, so do I. Do you bring in sinfulness that needs a resolve that deserves judgment? Yes, so do I. Is there a salvation available to you? Yes. Yes, there is. There was a day written on the heart of God for Noah's salvation, just like there is for you and for me. Let's skip down to verses 11 through 13, and then we're going to skip over to chapter 8. Genesis 7, 11 through 13, in the 600th year of Noah's life in that second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the day all the fountains of the deep burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. Now down to chapter 8, verses 15 through 16. And God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Genesis 8, 20 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered a burnt offering on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. We heard that passage earlier. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. 
While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That, that passage alone should cause the hymn, for those of you who are familiar with the church, great is your faithfulness to come to mind right away. Summer, winter, springtime and harvest. Sun, moon and sky and their courses above. They all bow in manifest wisdom. Great is your faithfulness. Genesis 9, 16-17 then says, When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. God's talking about himself. I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Then God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Our passage about, uh, that Moses is, is expressing here gets very detailed. Down to the very day of Noah's life, when the judgment of the flood came, make no mistake, it's a it's an event rooted in history. Jesus Christ himself referenced Noah and the judgment that was upon people. It's no myth. One day, it started raining. And it didn't stop. For 39 more days and nights, the world flooded just like God said it would. And this is where we begin to understand not just the promise of a covenant, but the covenant that God is making with Noah. He's going to promise not to flood the earth again in that way. But that doesn't mean that our sinfulness doesn't still deserve judgment. This water is where it reveals the mercy of God toward us. We deserve punishment, but we're offered peace with God through Jesus Christ. I came across this definition of covenant that I thought might be helpful to consider this morning. I asked the guys just to, to let us listen this morning. My notes and, and references to where these materials are pulled from will be online. This definition of covenant is what I came across. A covenant is a relational promise marked by faithful love. It's relational. It's not simply a cold business contract. The parties of a covenant know and care for each other in some meaningful sense, and it's a promise. A covenant is more than just a warm, fuzzy feeling. One person or group actually agrees to something, and another person or group agrees to something else, but it's marked by faithful love. Both parties agree to be faithful to the terms of the covenant because there is a genuine and lasting love commitment between them. God preserves us through His covenant mercy. I, I wear a wedding band for the covenant that I'm entered into with Stephanie. There is a sign for the covenant that God entered into with us here. And it is a bow in the clouds. I'm not sure what translation you're reading from here today, but I want to make sure that we define this word rightly. A bow is a weapon of war. But it's not pointed to me. It's not pointed to you. It's pointed to the very heart of God. And there's a cross-shaped arrow where he pierced his own heart with his son's blood. 
it is a sign to him. So yes, I can explain it away as refraction of light, that it's actually not a bow, that it's a, a rainbow circle, but what is that telling me in the midst of the trials that I'm walking through? You ever notice that a rainbow doesn't show up on a sunny day? It means trouble and clouds and storm and tumultuous life is nearby. It means that we might still be enjoying that one aspect of water in Florida that's not so scary. That's that, that's that smell of a summer rain. And we see a rainbow. It is a sign not to be explained away scientifically, but to be understood biblically. That is pointed at God's very heart for me and for you. Will you receive the mercies that he extends to you through Jesus Christ? Will you see that through Jesus Christ his mercy is more and more every day? Why do we say that? Well, because they're new to us every morning. Every day begins with his mercy new. May we receive of it rightly. All week I've had in my mind the picture of, I don't know the right phrase for them, but like the stained glass images that you hang in a window this like a sun catcher or something along those lines. And I mean, how many of us have, when we think of the story of Noah, that like almost cartoonish stained glass image of a rainbow, not realizing what it actually means about God's heart toward his creation? See, water becomes a part of a recreation here. Water becomes a part of a, a, a washing of his creation. It's the birth of something that he is going to do in each one of us when we become a new creation in Jesus Christ. The imagery here should not be lost on us as believers because it is very comprehensive. But it reveals something to us about the heart of God and his salvation that he offers to me and to you. that it is enough for whatever you're facing. It is enough for whatever you don't know about the rest of today or tomorrow. It is enough for what's on your Facebook feed right now that you're not checking, that you're going to learn about later that's going on with friends or loved ones. It's enough for all of that. So when I'm not enough, which is always, He is enough always. God preserves us through his covenant mercy. And through Christ, his mercy is more, as we're going to sing in just a moment. This week, Chip and I have been putting some finishing touches on the church budget for 2022 in preparation to present that to our elders, to our financial advisory committee. This is not a financial ask this is something that was kind of bothering me about our budget. There's all kinds of fun things going on in our budget as a church, as I'm sure you're experiencing in your home. Stephanie came home from the grocery store the other day, and she, she said the most tragic thing to me. She said, I didn't buy bacon. <laughs> Babe. She said, it's just getting so expensive. Babe. 
we're facing the same things. Do you, do you know something started bothering me? And, and I'm, I'm just going to share it with you how it happened throughout the week. It bothered me that we didn't increase our water budget. You may think, well, that sounds weird. I think the city does that for you. That's not the water budget I'm talking about. I'm talking about the water budget. See, there was a day that, and I remember this vividly, in, in the old sanctuary at Calvary Assembly, when I, was, when I was immersed in the water and then brought up new, water is powerful symbology in our faith, but water is not our faith. But it's representative of something that's going on in our lives. And it bothered me that we didn't think about that part. And I started thinking, well, like, I, maybe that's a good way to just challenge the church in the midst of this. And I was convicted in that moment. I was convicted in that moment because I'm the church just as much as you are. I don't want to just say that I want to see that filled every Sunday. I want to take the steps every week to talk about this bow in the clouds that's not pointed at me. And tell the people about that about the opportunity for salvation. Because I want to see that filled every week. But I have a part to play in that just as much as you do. So let's blow out the water budget next year. Let's talk about the mercy of one who preserves us. And you may think, like, you keep saying that, but what do you mean by that? What do you mean that God's mercy is going to preserve us? See, this account of Noah is not kept for us to simply reveal the salvation of God it's to remind us of it in a way that says it will lead you home it will lead you home see we're told if we kind of return to that illustration of water that there is a washing of the water of the word that that water can cleanse us from all unrighteousness uh, the water the living water through Jesus Christ can cleanse us of all unrighteousness in 1 John 1 9 we see that Jesus is himself the living water that we truly thirst for Jeremiah 2 13 says this for my people have committed two evils they have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. TikTok trends have nothing on this. Yeah, I'll talk to them about that as soon as this fills up and they're holding a colander under a sink. See, that's biblical imagery. We try to formulate these things that can hold no water. Jeremiah 17, 13 says this, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. Remember the earth? Not something I want to be written in. I'm assuming you don't want to be written in that either. That pervasive evil. Why are they written in the earth? Because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water what does Jesus say to the woman at the well in John 4.10 he says this Jesus answered her if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you give me a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water 
Make no mistake. Jesus is the one whose mercies are more for us, whose mercies are able. He is the one who is our maker. He is our keeper. He is our bearer. He is himself our rest. We're going to get to that in just a second. And he is the one who makes us new creations in him. But this account of Noah reminds us there is a judgment day coming for our sin. And through Jesus, we can be ready. Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, 36 through 39, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be this coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. There is a day coming. So let me ask you two questions. Are you here today? Are you ready in Jesus Christ for that day? That great and terrible day of judgment? I don't say this to heap coals because if you are here today and you're in Jesus Christ, you are ready for that day. It will be a day of rejoicing and praising His name because of His mercies. Are you living like it, though? Imagine the amount of time that Noah was building the ark and he was going about his day and he'd walk into the grocery store. I know it didn't exist. Just stay with me. And they say, oh, there goes old crazy Noah. Still building that ark? Yes. He was being faithful to the instructions that God has given. In being ready for that day, are we doing the same? Would people look at our lives and say, there goes crazy Chris. There goes crazy, insert your name there. Are we living in a way that people notice the difference that we're building for a kingdom that is not our own? Even more frightening to me, is that yours is one of the mocking voices. And today may be your day of salvation. I'm so tempted to say, if you just heard a phone ring, maybe that's for you. <laughs> oh, that'd be good though, right? Man, missed opportunity. Is today your day for salvation? Is today the day that the Lord is saying, don't put your hopes in anything other than my finished work on the cross through Jesus Christ? Don't have the bow pointed at you when that judgment's been satisfied through the arrow of the cross through my own heart so we can rest in his mercy. We can rest in his mercy. Noah's name actually is very closely related to a Hebrew word and Noah's name actually means rest. Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4 says that we can enter into his rest. We can rest in the mercies of God. Not striving, not flailing about, not trying to accomplish something else because his work is finished. In a book that many of our community group leaders have called Genesis, a 12-week study, 
It says this, the ugliness and hopelessness of the human spirit prompt us to marvel at the even greater depths of God's love in sending his own son to suffer on behalf of such hopeless sinners. That is a mercy that we can rest in. The ark represents a place of refuge. Christ is our ever-present refuge in times of trouble. His commands rule as sovereign over creation. That's demonstrated in the scripture through his command over the winds and the waves with his disciples. Genesis 9 reveals that the sign of a covenant is a bow. In his book, The Christ of the Covenant, Robert Palmer says this, by this decree, God binds himself to preserve the earth in its present world order until the time of the consummation. God has come in judgment, but he has also provided a context of preservation in which the grace of redemption may operate. From the covenant with Noah, it becomes quite obvious that God's being with us involves not only an outpouring of his grace on his people, but it involves also an outpouring of his wrath on the seed of Satan. And you see why it is so important for us to understand the genealogies and the lines of family and lineage captured in Scripture. I want to encourage you to carefully consider reading the account of Noah. Read the lineage listed in Genesis 5 and then go all the way through chapter 10. See, Moses' original audience would have, I'm sure, by this point in the narrative of Genesis, been wondering, how will we survive this relationship with this holy God you're introducing us to? Not only in this life, but eternally. How will we survive this? See, Noah's life didn't end the way that you might think, and this often is left out of VBS tales or the Sunday school accounts. He ended up with sin still at work in him, drunk and naked. Not exactly what I'd call a great place to end a sermon, except that's what I'm doing. See, it's not a great place to end a sermon if it's about us. But it's not about us. Noah's life doesn't end the way that we think it would. It's not about where we start life out. It's not about where life ends up for us. It's about what? It's about God's covenant with us. It's about our life in Christ. It's about the salvation that He provides. It's about the things that we overcome through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not about the realization of dreams that we've been given. It's not about any outcome here on earth. And this is where I hope that this speaks to you today in a very specific and what I pray is a pastoral application for us as a church. I invite the band to join me. We're going to see this more in the, the weeks ahead that these covenants aren't about today. These covenants aren't about our children. They're not about our families. They're not about our home. They're not about our finances, our politics. The list can go on. They're about the eternal glory of God. And He will sustain us. So if you're here today, you're at a season of life when you look at all of the life ahead of you, should the Lord tarry, Maybe graduating high school, finishing up college, beginning to establish a home, maybe even a family. You think about how daunting it may seem to live a life for the glory of God. Can I tell you this? This covenant reminds us that God will preserve you. Cast yourself on his mercies.
Perhaps you're in a season of life similar to what I am, where you're kind of in this multiplication season of life. There are children moving out and moving on. Growing up, beginning to transition out of your home, graduating into new seasons of their own lives. God will sustain you. Let this comfort you today. If you're transitioning into a new season of life like retirement, members of your family spread abroad, they're out of your home, knowing this, that God will eternally keep his covenant. And here's what's the great news about that. Your best days are not behind you in your accomplishments at work. Your best days are eternally ahead of you. Because His grace will sustain you. You can live with new abandon to His purposes today knowing this. His mercies are more than the sum of things you've gotten right or wrong about your life. And He does this for one reason alone, to glorify Himself through our lives. To glorify His great name, not today, but throughout eternity. No matter your season or stage in life, what we learn through Noah's account in Genesis 5-10 through 10, and the focus we've given to chapters 6-9 through 9 today is this. God preserves us through His covenant mercies. Let's stand together and sing, church.